Hello again, friends. It has been a quick minute since I updated this podcast. Um, And I actually, I debated doing an episode at all because partly about uh, sort of the subject of of what this episode is about. Um, For those of you who are not familiar, there was an article that was published by the New York Times, I believe it was yesterday, which would have been October 5th, 2021, um, that has to do with a bad art friend. And that hashtag has been trending on Twitter. And um, shout out to my friend Maya, who alerted me to this trend and also to the article, partly as like, in case anybody else brings this up to you, you don't have to read the article. It is not required reading, which, of course, made me want to read the article even more because I have an insatiable mind. But (laughs) that sounds like a follow up to uh, a beautiful mind, but much worse. So (laughs) this article uh, concerns a non-directed kidney donation, which is, of course, why it would be of interest to me. But it is about so much more than that. And and like I said, I kind of debated maybe mating. <laughs> I sort of debated making an episode of this podcast about it, um, partly because the article has to do with like using your donation for clout, which if you wanted to look at it a certain way, making a podcast about my donation could be viewed in that particular light. But I in the end decided to, you know, record something about this, partly because I feel like I have some sort of, you know, reason to have a take on it, but also because I have a crap memory and half the reason I made this podcast in the first place was to document my journey so that at some point when I'm old and and approaching senility, I can look back and go, oh yes, this was a thing that I did and here are the details that led up to it. So in order to not gaslight myself, I have made this podcast and I want to just record my thoughts on this article and sort of share with you um, my perspective on it. And so now um, buckle in for a completely unsolicited hot take on the bad art friend debacle uh, as reported by the New York Times. So uh, a quick summary. This is a New York Times article written by Robert Kolker. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. And the two main Bethlehem's characters in this article are uh, two writers out of the Pacific Northwest, Don Dorland and Sonia Larson, uh, who are referred to as Dorland and Larson through the majority of the article. Um, I will try to be as brief as possible, but essentially, for those of you who haven't read the article, which I do recommend, it's really beautifully written and very compelling. Um, Don Dorland is sort of the person at the center of this. She uh, like me, donated her kidney to a stranger. And Sonia Larson is um, one of her colleagues, a fellow writer in the area, who ended up writing a short story called The Kindest that, unless I'm mistaken, was published in 2017, that uh, effectively uses Dawn's story as part of her own story. And it's it's shown in a very different light, and that's sort of part of the controversy here. So uh, to make another (laughs) very embroiled story shorter, what ended up happening is that Don sued Sonia, so Dorlin sued Larson, over um, plagiarism um, accusations because, especially because Larson had basically used the letter that Dorlin had written to her recipient prior to donating, had basically lifted it verbatim and put it into her own story. 
So there's a lot going on here that has to do with um, with plagiarism, with the ethics sur- uh, surrounding fiction writers, has to do with the true meaning of altruism and what donating a kidney means. There's race relations. It has everything. Go straight to the top. Um, <laughs> it's And like I said, it's a very fascinating article. I highly recommend it. Um, I I think it's behind a paywall in New York Times, but I was able to read it and I don't have a paid subscription. So maybe it's not um, by the time you listen to this podcast, maybe it will be. I'm not sure. But it is it is interesting and gripping and there are a lot of ways to view it. Um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to kind of put down put down my thoughts about this and take away from this what you care to. Um, I am a singular person. I want to say that off the bat. The only reason I'm taking a hot take on this is because I am also a non-directed kidney donor. Um, and there were certain parts of this article that kind of jumped out to me that made me realize if you aren't a donor or you're not, you know, particularly close with somebody who is, this may come off a different way than than if you are familiar with this process. So that was sort of part of why I wanted to speak on this Um but there's there's a lot of um, especially sort of the emotional journey that Dorlin took um, in reference to her donation that really had some had some echoes in my own journey for good and for ill. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit, too. So the big the big sort of like inciting incident that leads into why this was controversial and at all is uh Prior to her donation, and we don't really know particularly what led up to Dorlin deciding that this is something she wanted to do. I don't know if it's something she decided within a couple months or if it was like a lifelong thing. Um, It kind of doesn't really play into it as much, but I would be interested to know how long this is something she's been looking at. Because for those of you who have listened to this podcast, it took me nearly a year from like taking my first, you know, steps into registering for um, the National Kidney Registry to actually donating my kidney. And this was after five or six years of starting the process and then kind of being left in the dust by people who were wasting my time. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it, it, regardless, for anybody who's a donor, it is a long process. Um, it could be, you know, a matter of a few months. It could be a matter of a few years. So regardless, this is something that she has put a lot of thought into. But the inciting incident that made me kind of raise an eyebrow and go, oh, what? What are we what are we doing here? Uh, Dorland, prior to her donation, set up a private Facebook group and invited uh, other writer colleagues and I assume, you know, friends and family to a private Facebook group for her donation. And like, OK, you know, because there's there's bound to be a lot of people asking like, hey, how's it going? Or, you know, so I I assume I can only assume that this was more in the sense of like setting up a group text so that you didn't have to individually reach out to people who were interested in your journey. That is that is her prerogative. I can't throw a lot of shade on that. But I can throw a little bit of shade on it because it feels very it feels very virtue signally and for those of you who have listened to the rest of my podcast that is something that I struggled with a lot and I had to discuss it with my therapist a lot during this entire journey because yes this is this is a big deal and this is something that you you are understandably very proud of like 
this is one of the proudest things I personally have ever done in my life. And I assume probably the same for Dorland. Um, and so it is something that you want to share and probably want to share with your with your close friends. Now, what's weird is that she she shared this or invited people to this group who weren't necessarily super close with her, as you find out later that Larson was one of the people she invited to this Facebook group who who she sort of knew in passing, I guess. Um, and I, there were some other writers that were in this group that I guess weren't terribly close with Dorland. And so a lot of them ended up kind of on a group text, like, why, why are we here? Um, kind of discussing what Dawn was posting. And one of the things that Dawn posted in this group was the letter she wrote to her recipient. And it's this letter that is sort of the center of this controversy. Um, because that's that's what was lifted from the, the group that was put into Larson's story. And it was modified down the line, but the original version of her story, we find out, spoiler alert, in the article is she lifted it verbatim for uh, an original draft of the story. And shit hit the fan. But um, I, I'd like to read her letter for you um, for context, but also I think, it's, I think it's interesting to note. So, in Dorland's words, Personally, my childhood was marked by trauma and abuse. I didn't have the opportunity to form secure attachments with my family of origin. A positive outcome of my early life is empathy, that it opened a well of possibility between me and strangers. While perhaps many more people would be motivated to donate an organ to a friend or a family member in need, to me, the suffering of strangers is just as real. Throughout my preparation for becoming a donor, I focused a majority of my mental energy on imagining and celebrating you. Now, I don't know if that's her entire letter, but that's the excerpt that we that we get to see. Um... Part of the litigation that ended up with this letter uh, is based around the the later version, uh, later version that Larson wrote, where she sort of modified that letter and, and made it her own. And uh, the legal basis that her own lawyer was saying was that, you know, you can't you can't sue somebody for um, that kind of writing because uh, a letter to a recipient is is a genre in and of itself. And so you can't really be, you can't litigate against it because it's it's very similar to what other donors would have written, which which is one of the reasons that I wanted to to make an episode, because he's right, I think. Again, I am a single person; my opinion counts zero percent. But my letter sounds very similar to that. Now, I didn't. The thing that I've sort of again was raising an eyebrow over. I didn't talk about my childhood trauma and abuse in my letter to my recipient. I did I personally speaking as a as a singular person talking for myself I didn't find that important to communicate to my donor um even though it it does play into why I donated and and what she says about um you know didn't have the opportunity to form secure attachments with my family of origin which you know engendered empathy and and I absolutely 100% agree with her uh when she said uh, that some people would be motivated to donate an organ to a friend or family member. The suffering of strangers to me is just as real. 100% agree. But like the fact that she, the fact that she felt compelled to share her background of trauma and abuse to somebody she doesn't know. And I, I cannot stress this enough. And, and this is also a piece that I think is missing from the article 
when you are a non-directed kidney donor nationwide, and I don't know how they do this in other countries, but this situation happens in the U.S., when you are a non-directed kidney donor, you do not know who your recipient is. I didn't even know until like a couple weeks before I donated that my recipient was male and 34 years old. That was the sum total of information that I knew. So you so you don't know. You do not know this person. You don't know their life story. You don't know a single thing about them. So I find it a little, a little icky that she felt compelled to share that she grew up with a background of trauma and abuse. Like maybe that's kind of triggering for the other person to read. Or or maybe they're not emotionally equipped to like deal with the fact that the person whose organ is now going to be in their body was a body that was that was traumatized. Like that if I I'm putting myself in a recipient shoes, but like that would make me feel a little not great. That's just me. Um but the rest of it I I really I really uh, identified with, um, and especially the, you know, the mental energy and imagining and celebrating you, I, that, that really echoes how I felt as well, because I kept, I kept thinking about the, the fact that something that I could personally do, that I could affect change in the world for one person, but also for anybody who cares about that one person, and that they can make choices now in their life that they couldn't make when they were on dialysis. Whether they are good choices or bad choices, it didn't matter to me. The fact that this person was now uh, given the opportunity to to do a lot more with their lives than they could before, that is something that I carried with me. And, it, and honestly, it kind of kept some of the panic attacks at bay. Um, I shouldn't say panic attacks. The, the, the fears and doubts, you know, that are inherent with going to have surgery of any kind. Um, but certainly one where I knew that I was going to be leaving the operating room with less of my body than I went into it with. Um, and so focusing on the why really helped. And I, and I like that she, that she mentioned this in the letter, but again, the, this, this is sort of the inciting incident. And this is the letter that was lifted. I get why the other people in that Facebook group would be like, yikes, like, it's a little, it's a little cringy. It's a little cringy that there's that she set up a Facebook group at all with people that she wasn't particularly close with. And it was a little cringy that she that she added her own trauma and abuse to her letter to a recipient and also posted this letter in the Facebook group. I have not. I'm being judgy. I get it. Like, full disclosure. I have not posted the letter that I wrote. I don't think because I don't think it's my place to. Um, it it sounds very similar to this. There's not a ton of of deviation, but it's something I shared with my recipient. And if he feels compelled to share it, that's totally his prerogative and I wouldn't have a problem with that. But it doesn't feel like it's mine to share. Does that make sense? Um, and that's sort of what my big takeaway from this entire situation is. It, it has to do with what is altruism. I think that's that's like the big thing about this and like what what Dorland is seen as an altruistic gift, which it is, like, does not matter how you slice it. When you donate an organ, that is a gift of altruism. When you, sorry, when you non-posthumously. <laughs> but even then, like, not everybody chooses to be an organ donor um, after they pass. Um, you know, so even people who are, are have their little organ donor checkmark box checked, 
that's still a gift of altruism, whether or not it ever, you know, becomes useful. Um, but this is something that I spoke with my therapist about at length when I was leading up to it, that that altruism is a gift, you know, because I was going back and forth about whether or not to even be public about this donation because it felt kind of virtue signaling and, um, you know, kind of kind of cringy about like, hey, look at this cool thing I'm doing. Everybody tell me how great I am. But that at the end of the day, I, I, I shared it because I'm proud. I shared it because I, I would love to inspire other people to consider being a living kidney donor. You don't have to, but it would be amazing if you considered it. Um, but also, I, I think the way that I looked at it was what my therapist sort of was speaking about, where true altruism is a gift, and a gift is something given without any expectation of reciprocation, acknowledgement, because because anything that you require in in um, in return negates the point of gift giving. And and I say this whether it be a kidney or a Christmas present, a gift, a true gift requires nothing in return. And keeping the donation anonymous is a great way to make it a true gift because you can't even be thanked by your recipient. And I went back and forth for a long time about whether or not I even wanted to meet him in order to kind of maintain that anonymity and make sure that he never, ever, ever, ever felt compelled to give me anything in return, whether it be a physical thing or gratitude or whatever. The reason I changed my mind about it is because he wanted to meet me. And that felt important to me and that felt special. And it ended up being great. So like, I hope he's listening right now. <laughs> it was wonderful to meet and it was very special. But again, that felt like something that wasn't mine to give. The only thing I had to give was my kidney and I gave it. And then my end of the transaction was done. Um, so it seems to me that in this act of giving, which again, you can't deny the altruism of giving your, your kidney, regardless of how you go about it. It's a, a true altruistic move is a true gift. And that means you don't expect anything in return. What ended up happening is that Dorland reached out to a few people who she noticed had not interacted with any of her posts in that private Facebook group and was like, hey, I don't know if you saw, but I donated my kidney. That's asking for something in return. It's not asking for something in return from the recipient. And I don't know. I have no idea what her relationship with the recipient is. I don't know how he how he plays into this situation. I don't know if he's even known to anybody else in this um, <laughs> debacle. But that's that's the part that really got scratchy in in my soul is is following up and like demanding recognition from somebody else that honestly had no had no connection with the situation other than being involuntarily invited to this Facebook group. Whoa. Sorry, it sounds like my neighbors upstairs are creating Thunderdome up there. Anyway, apologies. Um, yeah, it, it felt like she is like she is clawing for some sort of recognition. And she you find out later. Um, what does she say? As uh, says Dorland is not shy about explaining how her past has afforded her a degree of moral clarity that others might not come by so easily. 
Um, and also, there's another quote. Uh, she she asks, or in, in following up with some of these writer people in that group, why they hadn't reacted to any of her posts. She says, Dorlin says, do writers not care about my kidney donation? Which kind of confused me because I thought I was in a community of service-oriented people. Nobody owes you praise or attention or validation for anything you do, whether it's good or bad. Nobody owes you that. And reading up a little bit more about her past, you know, and, and sort of extrapolating a little bit, but also I identify with that. I also grew up in a family where I learned from a very early age that the way to get love is to A, never have any needs of your own, and B, to perform. You did this, you you put on a performance, whether it was, in my case, singing and dancing or like being really smart and getting good grades and shit. You put on, you perform the the actions that this person, the other person likes constantly in order to feel like you are loved. It kind of doesn't matter how you feel about it. As long as the other person grants you the love that you are looking for, you continue that performance. So like I get, because it's a huge, it's a huge deal to decide to donate your kidney, especially to a stranger. And you would think if this is, if this is the way that your mind is wired, like when you do a big good thing, you will get the love that you are looking for. And like that's a very understandable connection to make, especially if you grow up with that mindset. And again, I don't know specifics about her childhood trauma, but like I felt like there were a little bit of there were a few parallels between hers and mine. Nobody owes that to you. Nobody owes that to you. And that's a very sad and disappointing thing to know and understand. But you have to get past that because when you when you feel like kindness performed on your part is a transaction so that you can get something in return it is no longer kindness that's not true let me go back it's no it's still kindness but it's no longer a gift and kindness really ought to be a gift i think um so it it feels very much like this is you know her her little girl inside of her little dawn crying out for the love that she needs and like i'm in no position to psychoanalyze her but that feels very right it feels because it's it's something i felt too um and it took a lot for me to realize why i was doing this and and my therapist said something to me and that i've i've mentioned in previous episodes um i never felt like this was a sacrifice i felt like i was sharing because I never felt like I had lost something after I donated. I felt like I was just, I, I felt like I was sharing. There's no other way to put it. Um, and I was really excited that that was how I felt about it because I wasn't giving up <laughs> emotionally. I wasn't giving up a piece of myself so that someone else would love me for it. Because that's how I felt for most of my life that I needed to give like chip off pieces of myself for other people because other people's needs were more important than mine. Um, and I never felt that way about this donation. And hearing this saga, it feels like Larson was still, or I'm sorry, not Larson, uh, Dorland was still stuck in that older mindset 
that you are required to give of yourself to get love. And that bums me out, but it also, understandably, I think, plays into why she had such an emotional reaction to people not reacting to it. Like, she, she probably felt very ignored. She probably felt like, look, I did this big thing. Why aren't you loving me? Um, because that was the transaction that was expected, which fucking sucks. But if that's the way that she was raised, then, like, you can't, you kind of can't blame her for it. You can't, well, I should say, you can blame her for that reaction because it's her responsibility to grow past it, but I, you can't blame her for that knee-jerk reaction. There's another quote in the article that pertains to this. Um, this is the, the writer speaking. He says, her proudest moment, she told me, hadn't been the surgery itself, but making it past the psychological and other clearances required to qualify as a donor. She says, I didn't do it in order to heal. I did it because I had healed, I thought. That that whole little section there fucking hit me like a bolt out of the blue because same. I honestly wasn't 100% sure that I would be cleared to donate because I struggled with uh, an eating disorder when I was in my 20s. Um, probably struggled with it for much longer than that, but I don't have a ton of childhood memory, so I can't really say. Um, and it got to a point where I was at a like a company party when I worked at Medieval Times and I had to lie down because I had excruciating pain in my kidneys because I had been starving myself. I had been drinking a bottle of wine every night. Um, I had been going to the gym sometimes twice a day, almost every single day. Like I, I hated my body. I hated myself. I was dealing with a lot of really awful things and going completely untreated because I was still in the mindset that you don't Ask for help because asking for help makes you weak. We have since grown past that. We are very happy to report that. But I was not sure that I would be deemed healthy enough because I didn't know if I had permanently damaged my kidneys after that experience. But also, and she's absolutely right, there are psychological clearances. I had to get, I had to basically get a letter of recommendation from my therapist to my social worker um, who's who was on my donation case to be like, She's good. <laughs> this isn't going to break her. And maybe that sounds a little silly. But that meant the world to me. That this man who has been working with me at that point for almost two years. Trusted me. Had seen my growth. He has seen me in some dark places. Like dark places. And he's seen me in some good places. And he has seen my my work and my ethic and my he has seen into the depths of my soul and he weighed my soul against a feather and he found me worthy. And the the day I found out that I had been cleared psychologically and medically, that I was okay to give a piece of myself to someone else and it would help them. Oh my God, like that's it's so validating. And I so I completely identify with with that part of what she said. Um, but like, I, I think that's an incredible piece of self-awareness on her part when she said, I did it because I had healed, I thought. Because there was still that little piece of her, that little girl screaming out for the love and attention that she needed, that she thought in some way that doing this big, amazing thing would would give her some validation without realizing that that ruins the concept of a gift. 
Now, there's another piece to this article um, that I wanted to touch on because Larson is a woman of color. If I'm not mistaken, she is Chinese and white, I believe. Um, and so part of part of the situation involving Dorland's eventual litigation against Larson was really like taking her to task for being a being a white savior like having this white savior mentality and trying to take credit for the voice of a woman of color and i get where she's coming from because you know this is what it looks like it you know dorland a white woman a white woman's instagram a white woman is literally taking a woman of color to court to try to get credit for words that were written by a woman of color saying, no, you stole that from me and I deserve credit and payment for it. I mean, this, if you read the article, like it escalated and escalated like thousands of dollars are now in contestation and, and legal fees, excuse me, legal fees and all this stuff. Like it, it gets real icky, it gets real icky real fast. Um, and Again, I want to preface this by saying I am a singular person. My opinion counts for 0% in the wide world. But that particular angle felt a little shoehorned for me. And I I sympathize with Larson's situation because absolutely that is what that is. Um, but the thing, the thing about it is typically the white savior mentality is in context of of a white person giving you know giving themselves this savior complex in that they are saving a person of color like that's the that's the power dynamic is the person who has you know structural structurally oh god i cannot say that word structurally let's go with that um more autonomy and power and privilege than a person of color does being like oh look at me I'm, I'm going to lift lift you poor brown person out of this destitution in which you find yourself aren't I so glorious that is my understanding of, of generally what white saviorism is the issue that I take with that um because that that was something that was something that um Larson had sort of pegged Dorland as prior to everything kind of blowing up prior to as far as we know, her even writing the story that was in question um, based on, you know, the the letter she wrote to the recipient and the way that Dawn was kind of going about all of this. The issue I take with it is that Dawn never knew who her recipient was. You don't know. It's like legally they cannot tell you who this person is. So for all Dawn knew, she could have been donating to a rich white man. You know? So... I, I take a little bit of umbrage with pegging her as as having a white savior complex simply because she is looking for recognition for her donation. I don't it it feels a little icky that she was looking for recognition, but I don't know how much her whiteness plays into that dynamic because she did not know who her recipient was. Um I have seen a few like TikToks or videos of of white donors, you know, um, throwing this big party, like a surprise party for 
their recipient who is a person of color and like people are filming it and there's like signs and shit that say I'm your donor or we're a match or whatever and you know and the, the recipient is overcome with emotion and they hug and it's really beautiful it's a beautiful moment and again as a donor like I fucking I identify with that some of that feels a little cringy because it does look a, it looks a little white saviory like the optics of it look a little white savior where it's like white person saves a brown person hooray let's throw them a ticker tape parade I feel like that holds a little bit more water if you want to um if you want to label it as white saviorism than this particular case with Don Dorland because she does not know who her recipient is um on the other hand, a lot, and what we learn in the article, that Larson's uh, writing has touched on race dynamics a lot. So she is obviously, and, and as a mixed race woman, she is familiar with race dynamics and the the very problematic nature that is white saviorism. So I again, I, I can't blame her for seeing it through that lens because there is ample evidence for it. My personal understanding of what I am seeing, and again, I am not, you know, personally involved in the situation, but just from this article and like my own experience, I'm, I'm sure it plays a role, but I don't think it plays as central a role as it is being made out to do. Does that make sense? She asked to nobody in particular because this is a podcast. <laughs> anyway, that's my take on it. Whatever. There's there's a particularly cringy thing that that um Dorlin sends to Larson kind of early on when she first confronts her like hey I noticed you haven't been reacting to my posts that I think very much feeds into why Larson would label this like a white savior complex is uh Dorlin literally messages her and says I think you're aware that I donated my kidney this summer right yikes boo yikes again sympathetic because of you know, needing this validation, like, from the little person inside of you. But yikes, my dude. Um, when I was I was messaging my friend Maya, the one who alerted me to this article about it, I, I had this moment of, like, okay, I, I am not a writer in the sense that Dorlin and Lawson are writers, but I am an artist, and I have tons of artist friends who are writers, composers, lyricists, whatever. Can you imagine... If I had reached out to my composer friends and been like, hey, so, you know, I donated my kidney in March, right? Like, is there a reason why you haven't written a, a biopic um, musical about it yet? I just just wanted to touch base because I feel like, you know, that's a subject that's that's ripe with possibility. And, you know, you haven't you haven't done anything about that. Like, what the actual fuck? Hmm. It's heartbreaking if you take a compassionate stance on it. It is cringy as shit if you don't. And so both of those things are valid. If you feel sad and also cringy, you're probably in the right lane. Christ on a buttery Ritz cracker. I I cannot I cannot fathom reaching out to somebody unsolicited to ask why they haven't commented on this thing that you did. Do not owe you. Nobody owes you. And like one of the things that I was really bowled over by after I donated was the outpouring of love and kindness and support from from tons of friends um, 
but I didn't ask them to. And like, I got unsolicited care packages. That was amazing. I ate my weight in chocolate for like three months. I was, I was overwhelmed by it all. But I never asked anybody for that. <laughs> so like, I sort of equate it like as if I had reached out to some of my closest friends or even acquaintances and been like, hey, so I donated my kidney. Is there a reason you haven't sent me bagels from Zabar's yet? Like, who does that? Babes, who does that? Sorry, I just probably burst your eardrums by shouting that. Anyway, I had to touch on that. Um, there's another small little point that I felt um, needed mentioning. And uh, so this this group chat that ends up with, with some of the other um, writers outside of this Facebook group, one of them mentions uh, that she had posted like a photo or something. She became like an ambassador for living kidney donation, which like 10 points. Um but like the the photo she had posted about it had a hashtag that was hashtag do more for each other. Now, I don't know if that's an actual like cause that like that, that uses that hashtag or not. I couldn't find any specifically, but most of the hashtag when I went searching, it had to do with this article. So, you know, maybe my Google is a little uh, skewed at the moment. But like I, I have hashtagged my own photos regarding this with things like share your spare, which is an actual cause. Um, and, and I thought that was important. And I've also hashtag stuff with like, you know, kidney donation, non-directed donation, da, 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 because one of the things that I really was looking for prior to donating was a community of people who had also donated or were thinking about it because you want to get as much perspective and stories as you can. And it was so helpful. I met some amazing people through just being able to find them through hashtags. So I, I feel like the 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 group chat that was sort of dragging Dorlin for this said a hashtag seems like a cry for attention you're not wrong but as my therapist would say wanting attention is not inherently a bad thing um because sometimes it it can help you create a community and honestly it can it can raise awareness um I just I found somebody on Instagram who started following me because of this podcast and he has recently donated a kidney like that is we are creating a community of people. And and I think the biggest thing about this um, and something that I really identified with when they were kind of dragging her for like showing up in a in a parade as this ambassador for living organ donation. I think one of the most important parts about being visible in this process, and you don't have to be, like I'm not judging anybody who, who chooses to be truly anonymous about it, friggin' more power to you, but anybody who chooses to be visible about it, I think one of the most important takeaways that we're hoping other people see um, is that I'm perfectly fine. You know, I gave up, I gave up a literal organ out of my body. It is now living well in another person's body which is still something that i find miraculous but i am fine three weeks after my donation i felt exactly the way i had prior to donating i went back to normal i have had no health complications no no lack of energy other than those those few weeks afterwards that i was healing um because that's the number one question that i've been asked by by friends by family by strangers by people who have found me through hashtags is like you know, how do you feel now? And now this has been just over six months since I donated, which is really cool. Um, 
And, and what I tell them across the board is I feel normal. Not, not a single thing has changed from before I donated. If anything, I feel better than I did before because I, this donation, and, and I don't know if this is something that other people have experienced too after donating, it has fundamentally changed my relationship with my body in a good way. And I didn't realize that this was going to be, I didn't think that was possible. Um, because like about a month after I donated, I looked down at my tummy, which has always been, you know, varying degrees of squishy. And I just marveled at it. And I was like, a piece of you came out and it's now living in someone else. And you're doing fine. Like you just healed up and we're like, all right, business as usual. Let's keep going. You lost a piece of yourself and you're still chucking on like nothing happened. Holy crap, my body's amazing. I like looked down at my meat suit and went, oh my God, you're an amazing meat suit. I don't think I'd ever felt that in my whole life. I'm 37 freaking years old. And the first time I loved my body was after I donated a kidney. I don't recommend doing that if you need to love your body, but it is a possibility for you. Um, so, and, and gosh, uh, about a month ago, I was doing a gig with uh, America Sweethearts and, uh, Prior to the show, uh, I was I was we were having like an underwear dance party and one of the girls was was filming it. And I saw the video afterwards and like there's me in my underwear dancing around and, and all my jigglies were jiggling. And norm and I had this impulse from before of, of being disgusted by seeing my jiggles jiggling. And for the first time in my 37 years of life, I was like, nice. Like that's that's my body. I like I like it. It's a good body. And it wasn't me forcing myself to feel that. That was my natural reaction after the initial 37 years of ingrained body hatred. It was the first time I looked at a, at a video of my mostly naked body jiggling around and I was like, that's my girl. Like, holy crap. You know, so I, I like that being visible and being an ambassador for organ donation looks a lot just like being healthy, being active, being participatory in, in society the way that you were before. Because I think it really dispels the myth and the fears that a lot of people have of like, oh my God, I don't, I don't want to compromise my health. And like, that's legit because people can have complications. Again, I'm not one of them at the moment. But if you if you do heal up, I want, I want people to see that. I want people to know that that's a possibility. And it's it is a scary situation because it is surgery and surgery is inherently you know, not necessarily an exciting thing, but you can be normal. You can live a normal life. Um, and the gift that you give, I think, is worth it. So, I mean, I, I wrote some more notes about this, but I, I feel like I'm sort of flogging a dead horse at this point. Um, the fact that, that this litigate, like there was suing and countersuing and all this shenaniganry and I, I highly recommend the article if you want to like do a little more of a deep dive than I'm giving at the moment but what ended up happening is the it was it was discovered that Larson had lifted verbatim that that letter to the recipient in an original draft of the story it was later changed I don't think legally there's much of a foot to stand on in terms of litigation against it because it wasn't published and like made any money when it was actually plagiarized with that letter but also you know it sort of it it begs the question of 
what you know what is what does it mean to be a bad art friend um what does it mean to what what does ethics mean among writers and among creatives and and what's the difference between being inspired by something and plagiarizing something those are all questions that i am not necessarily qualified to answer nor do i particularly have a hot take on any of them but i do have a hot take on the kidney aspect of this story and the thing that my major takeaway after the dust of like what the fuck kind of settled all i could think about was the recipient the man that that dorland uh, donated her kidney to if they've met and and it seems that they have met he knows who she is he's now seen this article and he probably knows about the drama of it anyway from probably articles that have been published or maybe posts that he's seen because he's, you know, obviously directly connected to it. How does he feel about seeing this woman who gave him a gift, who gave him a second chance at life, being vilified, being dragged through stuff, but also knowing that he's at the center of of a battle between creatives i i don't know what he could possibly be feeling if he feels anything at all maybe he's just like this is not my business i'm stepping out i'm just gonna go over here and live my life with a functioning kidney goodbye for all i know honestly if i was him i'd probably do that um but i can't help but think that it has affected him in some way that i I think back to prior to when I donated and it wasn't so much that I would I would think about what it must feel like for my recipient to wake up from the kidney donation I thought more about what it felt like for my recipient to get that phone call from his donation coordinator to say we found a match because that is a universal experience for all recipients the relief the joy the hope the hope that it gives you that there there is somebody out there who is going to give you a piece of them. And if you get it from a living donor, your kidney lasts longer than if you get it from a cadaver. So not only did they find a match, but they found a match that is going to give him an organ that's going to last him for up to 25 years. Um, and now I wonder if he feels if the entire experience has been sullied because of all of this kerfuffle that's been happening around it. Again, I don't know the person. I can't speak for him. But that's all I could think about at the end of the article was this whole thing was for him. The donation was for him. The donation is what started everything. It feels a bit like... I don't really want to make the comparison, but I already started the sentence. Like a kid caught in the middle of a divorce, you know? Um... Where I feel like he needs to have precedence over this and seeing seeing this this thing this this thing that changed his life become integral to a battle that's gotta hurt so I hope he's doing well I mean I hope everybody involved in this situation is doing well because this looks very unpleasant but um that's that's really the thing that I wanted to talk about because even reading through some of the the Twitter um, the trending hashtags of bad art friend uh, 
you know, people are taking their hot takes and like writers especially are weighing in um, about it. I didn't see a single mention. And that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I personally in my scrolling did not see a single mention of I wonder how the recipient feels. And I think that's a shame. So, anywho, that is my completely unsolicited uh, hot take on the bad art friend uh, story. Again, if you if you feel compelled to read it, it is on NewYorkTimes.com. It is written by Robert Kolker. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll leave you with... Um, with a quote that is from a, a refrigerator magnet that I have seen most of my life. It, it was a gift from my dad to my mom. Uh, my mom, for many years, was a watercolor artist and an amazing ceramicist. And uh, so my dad gave her this magnet that said, Never piss off an artist. They'll immortalize your ass. So, uh, so yeah. Think, think hard about the art you choose to put into the world because you may not you may not be remembered for the thing you want to be remembered for who lives who dies who tells your story have a good one y'all thanks for listening